Skill shortage indicators have risen strongly over the last six months. A shortage of labour was the main constraint on expansion for more than one in five firms in the March 2007. The country, a large number of those who are unemployed are really unemployed because no one will give them an opportunity. Labour market conditions are expected to stay tight in the coming year. With demand for labour strong and economic activity... Uh, you know, we have people who have got university degrees who really struggle to get a job matching the skills that they have. Unemployment and underemployment will mean available labour remains in short supply. A net 42% of firms had difficulty finding skilled staff and a net 26% had difficulty finding... It's a paradox. On one hand, the latest quarterly survey of business opinion finds more than 40% of firms are having trouble finding staff. On the other hand, capable New Zealanders are sitting at home because employers don't know what they can do and appear not to be bothered about finding out. <laughs> Tim Faith has worked at Otaki New World north of Wellington his entire adult life. I do packing, get the toilets from outside, sister floors, cleaning, baby trolleys, then packing bays, and then cleaning the rubbers. Thank you, Tim. Tim is one of the lucky ones. An intellectual disability is one of the two most discriminated against disabilities when it comes to hiring staff. The other is a sight impairment. I'm interested because they're still going on about what was we've been sort of going on about, which is that whole thrust towards mental health here yeah. rather than actually looking at... Chris Ingalls of the Foundation of the Blind researched attitudes among employers toward hiring someone with a disability. On the one hand, employers' attitudes were generally positive towards um, people with disabilities in general, and particularly blind people. But on the other hand, uh, when it came to talking to them about would they employ a person um, with, who was blind, um, basically they said no. They were right in the pecking order if it came to a list of 14 or so different disabilities. But it'll be interesting to see how the revised stuff comes out. Yeah. But it'll all go back to the board, so... Mm -hmm. Thomas Bryan is the Employment Services Manager with the Foundation of the Blind. He says Australian research points to a figure of about 60% unemployment among blind people of working age. And he says when blind people are employed, there's anecdotal evidence it's often under different circumstances than sighted people, at least to begin with. Sometimes employers seem to offer a lower position until they're convinced that the person can do the job. But they don't do that for an able-bodied person until they're convinced they can do the no. job. No, they take them on face value. Yeah, you've got the CV. It says you've done all these things. Oh, you must be okay. Mm. We'll check the referees. The referees say that's fine. So we employ them. Chris Ingalls says many employers are needlessly fearful about what employing a person with a disability would mean to their company, particularly in terms of health and safety. Things like actually moving around in a work environment through a factory would be one example. Um, having the specialist tasks, say, on a production line. Uh, there'd be um, things like uh, being able to see people come to the counter. Um, it would be, oh, we, the job involves a computer and, oh, if I shut my eyes, I can't see the computer, so therefore they wouldn't be able to do it. it so it's just really ignorance. You know, so there's no time. reason why any of those jobs that you've quoted to mm. me couldn't employ a blind person? No, because jobs. there are particular aids or equipment or software that will enable um. a blind person to undertake those tasks safely 
and competently without having sight. People might have a guide dog, they're trained to find their way and keep the person safe. There's software that enables blind people to use computers. It reads by listening in the ear, you can hear it through headphones, what you and I would see on the screen. So there's lots of ways to overcome the hurdles that you and I as a sighted person would think that a blind person would experience. According to figures released in 2004, only about 45% of people with a disability and of working age are employed. For deaf people, it's higher at around 62%. Teresa Cooper, who's a landscape architect, has been deaf since birth and uses signing with an interpreter for our interview. Um, hello, my name is uh, Teresa Cooper. Um, I work at Wellington City Council as a heritage advisor um, and urban design unit. How do you manage day to day when you're working and you need to understand what people are saying to you? It can be quite a challenge. I use interpreters for meetings. Um, because a lot of discussion and I need to get 100% of the information. Um, if something needs to be raised urgently, I can't um, just get an interpreter straight away. So I find the best way to converse with somebody is through an email or um, paper and pen if it needs to be face-to-face. Teresa Cooper says many more deaf people would be employed if people focused on abilities, not disabilities. I believe that being deaf is an advantage in my work area because it's a lot easier for me to focus um, on what I'm working on. I'm not easily distracted by noise in the background. I'm much more um, aware of the situation. So yeah, I do believe it's an advantage to employ a deaf person. They work very hard. Teresa's manager, Gerald Blunt, says he'd now be much more likely to employ someone who's deaf. I think having worked with Teresa, that would make looking at that second person, if you like, that I would have a great level of comfort. I had a standard application form and it said, have you got any disabilities or medical conditions that can impact on your ability to do this job? And I say, no. And then I turn up and go, but you're in a wheelchair. See, I know, but it's not going to impact on my ability to do the job. I can do it. Um, and, but their perception of someone in a wheelchair doing it meant that they would never have thought that was possible. Peter Wilson is the National Development Manager for CCS Disability Action, formerly known as the Crippled Children's Society. A wheelchair user for many years, Peter says he lives in a world where most people assume they know what he can't do. Research shows that disabled people have, in many cases, less sick days off, more reliable in many cases, etc. So all those assumptions people make about disabled people are completely incorrect. So I think um, employers are doing themselves a little bit of a disservice by not looking at this group of people. Good morning, Whitbridge. Jackie speaking. How may I help you? Yes, this is the... In 1990, the government established Workbridge, the National Employment Agency for People with a Disability. 4,000 people a year get jobs through Workbridge. You wanted to be a receptionist. That's a what we talked line. about at the last meeting. Yeah, frontline receptionist. And do you think you can do that? Yeah. A Workbridge consultant, Brenda Keating, says they would probably place thousands more if employers hired purely on the basis of skills. I think the people that come to Workbridge really want to work. We only work with people who want to work. 
So when we're looking for a position for clients, we know those clients are work-ready and they have skills that are employable. I think that every one of those individuals could be placed if employers looked at the skills of those individuals. Because I can't ride a single bike, I have to have a tandem which is two-seater and the pilot's the front person I'm class is the stoker. Natalie Ashton, a keen cyclist, is a vivacious 26-year-old who's just had a highly successful work experience placement, but she's finding it difficult to get a full-time job. I've applied for about two or three so far this year and I haven't heard back. When you apply, do you tell them that you have a sight impairment? No, I've been told by the Blind Foundation not to put that on there because otherwise they just look at it and just biff it. I have gone home and cried a couple of times, but I just think, well, tomorrow's another day, got to try again, so I don't let that... Yeah, I don't wallow in it. You just get on with it? Yeah. So if I get upset, go home, cry, next day, <laughs> all better. <laughs> Workbridge also administers a pool of funds to help an employee pay for, for example, those clever bits of software that enable a blind person to use a computer or to hire interpreters for people like Teresa Cooper. A Workbridge business manager, Diana Woolhouse, says the money is there to encourage employers to hire someone with a disability and to support the employee to do the job. The extra cost for an employer is sometimes a barrier to employing someone with a disability. If you think, oh God, you know, I've got to get a special desk, I've got to get a special chair, in some employers' mind that becomes more of an issue than you know, the skills that that person's bringing into the workplace. So by just eliminating those little problems, most things can be eliminated very easily. Because of ignorance around what is available to help employers, not every experience has a good outcome. A manufacturing company in the Mid-North Island who would not be interviewed on tape nor identified said it once employed a number of workers who had a disability brought in by a manager with good intentions. But the company says it didn't work out and now those employees have left, including the best worker in the factory who was deaf but who couldn't hear the public address tannoy. Diana Woolhouse says a quick call to Workbridge would have solved that problem. We could assist them to put interventions in place that just get rid of all those problems really. Um, the interventions are at no cost to the employer because the support fund once again can pay for any of those inf- interventions. Some of it will be you know, just basic changes to the way things are done. For instance, a lot of deaf people we would put in things like flashing fire alarms because obviously they can't hear. Um, they may need to have pages on their belt because they can't hear a phone ringing. Um, yeah, there's lots, of, there's lots and lots of things that, that can be done with creative thinking. So rather than it being a wall, it's an opportunity for a creative thought. And my job was to write up records and I had to get the cards down from a shelf then write them up in a book. Peter Wilson from CCS Disability Action relays his own experience of creative thinking. Now, these cards are up on a high shelf, and I couldn't reach it, so I had to ask somebody to get the cards down, and it was just hopeless. And then they said, well, look, we need to address this, so we, we had a look around, and um, we found these new wheelchairs that are available. You strap yourself in, they stood you, stood you up. They were, this is 20, 25 years ago, $15,000, you know. There's only a couple in the country. So we got a line of one, and we tried it, and they terribly bulky. And a colleague said... Is there any reason we can't put those cars on a lower shelf so Pete can reach them? It was just as simple as that. 
And Peter Wilson says the sorts of things a company may have to alter to accommodate a disabled worker often benefits other workers too. I've often said to people, if we make our physical environment more accessible, who will it exclude? You know, so we have better ramps and better doors and better lighting and better signage. Who's that going to make that difficult for? So quite often there's a lot of benefit that comes out of that. Suddenly, for example, there's a big clear sign and everyone goes, oh, that's so much easier to use. Why didn't we do that years ago? Good afternoon, Business Enza. This is Kim speaking. The Institute of Economic Research calls this current period one of the most difficult for employers to find workers in 50 years. So the private enterprise umbrella group Business New Zealand wants employers to, in the words of its CE, Phil O'Reilly, think fresh about employing disabled workers. Mr O'Reilly says he, personally, and Business New Zealand officially, often say to employers that in a tight labour market they should be widening their candidate pool to include people with a disability. And it's very clear that there are some people who are not in the labour market because of either a a disability one way or another uh, that that could be in the labour market if employers were to think differently about how they might employ their, their services and their talents. Not only is that good for New Zealand and New Zealanders in the sense of making sure that everybody is employed to the best of their ability and the best of their talents, but it's also good for business because it means that it's much more likely that they're going to have a wider talent pool to hire from uh, and, by the way, they're likely to pick up some very, very loyal employees as a result of what they might do. So there's all sorts of business reasons why businesses would do this. I must say some are better than others at that, uh, but thinking businesses are are already thinking about these things and I'd hope more will, will act in this way in the future. The Employment Services Manager from the Northern Employers and Manufacturers Association, David Lowe, says a trial period would encourage business owners to give someone a go. If we had a 90-day personal grievance-free period, then um, employers would be more likely to give these people a go, and I think a lot of them would be pleasantly surprised as to how well things are turn out. But right now, uh, the law is so complicated that if you make a mistake in hiring someone, uh, you just can't deal with the problem, and so you tend to take a very conservative approach. A few months ago, grievance-free trial periods were a hot issue and the union movement campaigned to stymie MP Wayne Mapp's bill to introduce them. But how would the Council of Trade Unions feel if a trial period was to give someone with a disability a chance to show what they could do? I took the lift to the seventh floor of an office block in Wellington to find out what the CTU president thought. Good morning. Hi, I'm Penny Mackay from Radio New Zealand here to see Ross Wilson. The Employment Relations Act 2000 already provides for a probationary period. Now this is something that has got lost sight of in the debate, but there is already provision for a probationary period. The issue is that under the existing probationary period provision, you have to terminate the employment fairly. In other words, on the terms on which the probationary period was established, what the, um, op- the opponents of the existing provision want is to be able to uh, terminate the probation or the probationary employment uh, without any reason whatsoever. So the assumptions that people might make about, oh, I don't think he could do that because, well, could he write, for instance, which I found, funnily enough, in one of the... The chair of the Disabled Persons Assembly, Mike Gawley, wants nothing to do with trial periods after his own experience of one. He believes the job wasn't extended beyond the three-month period, not because of his disability, but because he had become involved in the union. So personally I'm very wary of 
probationary periods because I think they can be misused, as it was in that case. They are open to taking somebody on for a period of time uh, during that probation and then for reasons that may not be legitimate, using the, the, trip, the end of the probation period to say that's it. Or indeed, if there are some difficulties that do require some more work and some more time to sort stuff out, that the employer can say, well, I'm not prepared to do that. It sounds like too much effort, whatever. We can use the probation period or the trial period to end that person's employment. Tom Bryan, who's also a member of the Association of Supported Employment, says that organisation would like to see companies routinely offer short-term work experience to people with a disability to give them skills and the company a chance to see the worker in action, something Mike Gooley agrees with. If that was very time-bound and very focused about what it was trying to do, then that might be appropriate because that will give an employer, as you suggested, some makes it a bit more attractive for them to go along this journey of investigating whether some supported employment in that sense would be available in their enterprise. The government, in keeping with its policy Pathways to Inclusion, which signalled the participation in the workforce of more people with a disability, has established a type of work trial through its mainstream programme. Diana Woolhouse from Workbridge says mainstream provides two-year-long placements for people with a disability. Mainstream provides 100% of a person's wages for the first 12 months and 50% for the second 12 months. The jobs are within the public service, so they're really good career stepping stones. There's no guarantee at the end of that two years that, that the job that you've been working in will be ongoing. However, that is the spirit of it. Well, why not extend mainstream to private enterprise? Mike Gooley, for one, doesn't believe the government has that obligation. I don't think you could expect the government to say, well, the private sector can, can take advantage of this as well. And I think this was a government saying, as an employer, we're taking some responsibility. This is not the government as, if you like, funding social programs out there in the whole society. Private sector have got to, you know, make the same kind of commitment. Mainstream is a safe way of introducing someone to the workforce and giving them skills, but no one is committed if it doesn't work out. Mike Gawley says not everyone gets a permanent job from their time in the mainstream programme. But at least, I think, with that kind of programme, whether it exists in the public service or the private sector, it does give quite a nice uh, lead-in time to develop skills, to have the opportunity to do the training that you need to do, to build up the capacity so that come the end of two years, you are on a much better and more equal footing with other people seeking jobs in the open labour market. Once you're in the, in the open labour market, if you've got a job, you are immeasurably advantaged in terms of getting other, other work. It's getting in that's often the, uh, the circuit breaker. How I feel upset and hurt that this isn't happening to my friends. One of the most repeated statements by people with a disability is, don't assume you know what I can't do. Susan MacDonald, the national president of People First, a self-advocacy group for people with an intellectual disability, is a good example. I went to apply to become a home-based child carer and I had to get a doctor's certificate, as all wheelchair carers do. And um, my doctor actually wrote on my medical certificate that I was mentally retarded and incapable of doing this type of work. 
So I didn't hand in that certificate. I went back to my previous doctor before I went there. She fully supported me in doing it. And I went on a month's trial and yes, passed with outstanding excellence. In fact, they've told me now that I'm the best educator they have in their business. The CEO of the Disabled Persons Assembly, Gary Williams, recounts his experience as a self-taught computer programmer at the former Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. When I first started work, they couldn't work out how much I was When I first started work, they couldn't work out how much I was worth. So they plucked a number out of the air, and I kind of felt really annoyed because the number they had picked was way less than my colleagues were on. I tried to argue at the time that the work I was doing meant that I was basically sitting in the office all day doing my work. I wasn't driving around in company cars, I wasn't getting myself a cup of coffee every 15 minutes, and I wasn't talking to people much. So because I had hardly any downtime, I felt I was probably worth more to the company than all my colleagues. That didn't work, of course. But after my first year working for the DSIR, I set a record in the public service because after the first year my pay went up by 10 or 12 increments, where most people did one or two a year if they're lucky. And that created a record I'm proud of today. Tom Bryan says it's a common experience for someone with a disability, including him, to be offered less money to start with. The role I really applied for, which... On paper, I had the skills and the qualifications and background to do. That's not what they um, offered me at the end. They offered me a lesser position, and after six months, if I had worked out, then they would promote me to that other role. Sue and Mike Davies sent their daughter Megan through mainstream schooling because they'd been told by various government agencies she would one day be part of mainstream society and in a mainstream job. At 29, Megan has never had a proper job, nor even an interview. Mike and I have approached some businesses and they are sympathetic but they look at the health and safety issues and are a little bit concerned. Even though Megan doesn't have physical disability, they still are worried about having a person with an intellectual disability in their workplace. Sue Davy says employers don't give Megan a chance to show them she's more than a disability. She's got a a wicked sense of humour, she's very friendly and she's reliable. And once she's been told something, it's ingrained there. Let's give her and the likes of her a chance because they really can come through. They want to work and they deserve to. Rather than managers assuming what a person is or is not capable of, or if they're uncomfortable with asking someone with a disability how they would cope in an able-bodied culture, Mike Gawley has a suggestion for clearing the air at an interview. One of my friends said there was a really good question that any employing panel could ask of anybody. How can you work more effectively in your job or the job that you're going to be doing for us? That question was great because you would ask it of anybody and it allowed people to talk about the things that affected them in ways which would demonstrate that we had already thought about the sorts of strategies that would make us effective workers. It's been a few days since I first met Natalie at Workbridge, the young woman who wants to be a receptionist. I called Brenta Keating, her consultant, to see how she was getting on. 
Workbridge, Brenda speaking. Hello, Brenda. Penny Mackay here from Radio New Zealand. Oh, good to hear from you again, Penny. Brenda, I'm just ringing to find out how our young Natalie's getting on. Well, we've made loads of job applications, so we're hoping that we might have some answers with some job interviews early next week. Now, two of those applications were mainstream applications, and the employers are really positive that um, they might have something there. Okay, she must be getting pretty excited. Oh, she is, and I think now we're on a roll with the job applications. We'll just keep that going. She has such a wonderful attitude. I think anybody looking for a bubbly, bright receptionist will do really well with Natalie. Okay, that's great, Brenda. Thank you. Uh, Good luck. Bye-bye. There are thousands of people like Natalie still unemployed, but with skills businesses are hungry for. It seems it might only take a bit of creative thinking from employers willing to step outside the square for possibly thousands of New Zealanders to begin contributing to the economy.